0: we are back live hello everybody good day good evening good night to all of you wherever you are it's great to be back live on a live show again last uh, the last one was recorded so it's a great uh, pleasure to be back live with you all Uh, let me see who all is there with me and just let me know if you can see the screen clearly once or twice it's happened that it was all blurred so do let me know if there's any problem right okay let me see who all is there i can see sports buff Asmenor, Chess, Priya, Prathna, Ayush, Mohit, uh, Komal, Dragon Master, Samarth, Shweta, Twilight, Prajwal, Sanathoibi, Constant Change, Mayur, Purobi, Chiching, uh, Soumya, Harsh Jain, Nil Nilardri, Pinki, Akanksha, Sai, Daya, Kim Jong-un, Ayush, Pratap Singh, Shriheri Arjun, Ritwik Singh, Uday Teja, Varad Desai Arjun Game Game Loop Sheriff and lots of other people. Great to see you all. Thank you for being here. And hopefully, you're able to see the image clearly. I hope so. I don't see anyone complaining about it. So it looks like everything is fine. So, uh, as usual, I'm gonna pay. I have picked a bunch of questions and I'm gonna answer them. Questions from the comments and later on. If there is some time, then hopefully I will take some questions from the live chat. Also, um, first of all, a couple of things before that, first of all, we have crossed 300,000 subscribers on this channel. So thank you to all of you who have subscribed a huge honor for me that so many people uh, are subscribed to this channel and congratulations to all of you. This is your channel. It's all because of you that we have reached this uh, number. So thank you so much. Uh, secondly, uh, an update about the book and the course last uh, couple of weeks ago, I announced that I'm creating a book uh, creating a course and writing a book. I'd said that it will be released uh, by the first week of June. Uh, There's going to be a slight delay. I have been extremely busy the past few weeks. As you know, I've been traveling and uh, doing various things. So there's going to be somewhat of a delay, but I'm going to crank it out as soon as possible and uh, have it before you very soon. So just an update, slight delay, but not too much, hopefully. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, with that said, let us get into the questions. And let's begin with question number one, which is, what is the question number one? It is by uh, Domur Uh, Akhil. The question is, I am a Hindu from Mauritius. I don't know from which part of India my ancestors are from. I did hear my grandparents speak Bhojpuri, and I want to know how we ended up in Mauritius. Uh, Yeah, that's a very good question. Lots of Indians in Mauritius, and lots of Indians in other parts of the world and who have been there for well over a century. So what's the story? First of all, for those of you who are not sure where Mauritius is, I will uh, show it on the map. Where is the map? Here is the map. If you, Yeah, here it is. Let me remove this quickly. So as you know, you, you all know where India is. This is India. This is the subcontinent and the nation of India. Now if you go south into the Indian Ocean and you go towards Africa, you are going to find the island, the twin islands of Mauritius in the Réunion. So this is the island of Mauritius. Uh, it was under French occupation for quite a while, then under British occupation and so on and so forth. Long, long story. So this is where Mauritius is, is, and it's got a sizable Indian population. I think Indian origin people are either the majority or close to the majority. I'm not quite sure. I'm sure... Uh, the people from Mauritius, if any of them are watching, would know about this. So it's got a very sizable Indian population. And uh, lots of people of Tamil origin, lots of people whose ancestors spoke Bhojpuri and people from Maharashtra as well. People from uh, whose ancestors came from Maharashtra and other parts of India as well. So that is the story of Mauritius. Now what happened? How did so many Indians end up here? And let me uh, give the answer to that. So this all is a consequence, a legacy of colonization, right? So here we are. So this is something that happened in the 19th century and 20th centuries. So as you can see, this is the story of the Indian indentured workers from 1835 to 1917. As you can see, nearly half a million Indian indentured workers, which is a nice name, nice word for slave. So. 450,000, nearly half a million, were sent, were transported forcibly by the British to the island of Mauritius to work as indentured workers, whatever that means. It essentially means you are a lifelong slave and you don't have any option of going back to India. Then another 450,000, nearly half a million, was sent to the Caribbean region and also to Guyana in uh, South America. And about 150,000 more were sent to either South Africa or Eastern Africa, which is essentially Tanzania and Kenya. So these Indians were forcibly transported to these places far away from their motherland, from their homeland, by the British against their will. Essentially the word, the term indentured worker is euphemism for a lifelong slave, essentially. A person who was taken somewhere against their wish because of whatever technical reason, doesn't matter, and then they are made to work there. And they have to settle down there and and live out their whole lives there. And that's how there are so many Indians in South Africa, in Mauritius, in the Caribbean region, Trinidad, etc. And also in Guyana in South America. And there's been a significant Indian presence in Eastern Africa for for thousands of years. And this latest influx added to that. right? So people from Tanzania and Kenya, Indians. So that, in very brief, is the story of uh, what happened. How did these people end up in Mauritius? It is the British who transported these Indians to work as a essentially slave labor or very cheap labor. I'm sure they would be given a little bit of money just to make it look like you know everything is good and we are paying them for the labor and so on. But essentially, these people were transported against their wishes, against their will, and they were made to work there. And their descendants today, uh, are They form a, a sizable percentage of the population of Mauritius and the other places that we discussed. So that in brief is the story, is the history of what happened. All right, next question is by Om Naik. Uh, the question is, please show us the dry riverbed of the Saraswati in the map. I'm trying hard, but I'm not able to find it exactly. Well, if you look at Google Maps, it's very hard to find it because unless you know exactly where to look, it's it's not quite visible. Yeah? It kind of blends in into the environment. Uh, it's a little bit easier if you look, in, look at Google Earth uh, because it has topographical features which are more visible and all that. But even then it's a little hard to see. So let me show you something different something quite different which is which is essentially something that, that comes from left field let me share my screen once again um let's remove the question this here is a topographical map of the bottom of the indian ocean right so this this tells you what lies below the ocean and you can actually see you can actually uh, it's quite visible how the indian subcontinent migrated i mean moved all the way from africa And slammed into the Eurasian uh, continent, right? So, So let's take a closer look at this. So this is the Indian subcontinent. Let's go to the western portion of the Indian subcontinent and if you look here, if you look closely, you can see the drainage channels of the great rivers and that actually is visible under the ocean as well, under the sea. If you see on the If you can see my mouse pointer on the eastern part of India, there is the great uh, Ganga Brahmaputra river system that drains into the so-called Bay of Bengal. And you can clearly see below the surface of the Bay of Bengal, on on the bottom of the ocean, the drainage channel of this great river system. Similarly, in the western part of India, you can see the drainage system of the great Sindhu River, the great Indus River. And there is something else out there there is another uh, drainage system that is kind of visible but there is no river that corresponds to it. Or is there? It is a paleo-channel. It is a drainage channel from an ancient time when there was a river there. And that kind of tells you where the Saraswati used to be, where the Saraswati used to drain into the uh, so-called Arabian Sea. Right? Let's take a look at another image. This is a different image which also uh, kind of shows you that. Once again, if you look at Eastern India, you can see very clearly the in the Bay of Bengal, the uh, drainage channel, the, the, it's called the Ganga Cone. And you can see it goes all the way down to uh, the Andaman region. That's how deep and widespread the drainage channel of the, of the Ganga, Brahmaputra river system is. And similarly over here, in the western part of India, you will see the drainage channel and the and the so-called Indus cone, but you will also see a contribution from a river that no longer exists. So that is the ancient four, five, six, seven thousand-year-old, maybe ten thousand-year-old drainage channel of the great Saraswati River, which no longer flows because it dried out about three and a half or four thousand years before today. So you can clearly see it there. And that tells you where the Saraswati used to drain into the Western Indian Ocean. And then if you look, if you if you know where to look on Google Earth, you will be able to see the tell-tale, telltale signs of an enormous dry paleo channel of a river that no longer exists today, but which existed a long time ago. So that's what I can offer you. I, mean, we, I don't have Google uh, Earth installed over here on this uh, computer. So I won't be able to show you, but I hope that I have given you a different perspective, something that you may not have thought about. So so that's uh, something I can show you right now. And I hope that was helpful. Right. Okay. let's go to the next question. This is by The Talisman. I am Croatian-American. And my grandfather always taught me that before Europe, our people lived in Iran and India. And I always thought like my grandparents look like Indians with lighter skin. I'd like to I'd love to know your thoughts about this, but it has always seemed true like I can almost feel it in my bones. Very interesting question by this is an old question. I found it from eight months ago, but interesting question. I'm glad I found it. So what's the truth about the people of Croatia? Croatia is an interesting nation. So let's let's take a look at what Google has to say about Croatia. Let me uh, share Google search. One second. Let's go to Google. And let's do a, re, just a random Google search for the nation of Croatia. And let's, uh, see, let's see what that throws up. Croatia. Oops. Croatia. And let's look at the infamous Wikipedia website. Once again, let me remind you all that Wikipedia is not something you can trust. But let's just see what Wikipedia has to show us, has to tell us about Croatia. Let's see the Wikipedia article. Blah 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 story, history, and all that. Let's go to etymology. Yes, etymology. It says the name of Croatia derives from medieval Latin Croatia, Croatia, which is a derivation of Northwest Slavic Croat, which comes from the common Slavic Chorvat, from Proto-Slavic something whatever that is, which possibly okay possibly comes from the old Persian Harahvat. That's an interesting name, Harahwat. Now, one of the things about Old Persian is that it was essentially a dialect of Sanskrit. Old Persian, the Old Persian language was essentially an upper branch dialect of Sanskrit. It was an offshoot of Sanskrit with some distortions in the the pronunciations. And one of the signature changes in pronunciation was Sa to Ha. So in Sanskrit, if you have a word which, which has the sound Sa, old Persian would have the same word, but the Sa becomes a Ha. That's why the Sindhu became the Hindu in in the old Persian language. And therefore, what does this Harahwat word mean? Just replace H by S and it becomes Saraswat. So, the word, the name for Croatia, Kroat, comes from old Persian Harahwat, which comes from the Sanskrit Saraswat or Saraswati, which tells you that the country of Croatia, Hrvatska, is named after the ancient great river of India, the lost river, Saraswati. Why would the people of Croatia name their country or their land after a great ancient Indian river? Maybe because it, they remembered that great river from the land they came from. I mean, what other explanation do you have except for that? That their, uh, their origin lied in the land of the Saraswati. Their origin lay came from the land of the Saraswati. That's the only reasonable explanation that we have. There is no other explanation that makes sense. And of course, uh, do note the language they use over here in Wikipedia. The name possibly comes from old Persian Kharaawad and all that. And if you go into a further article, there will be all kinds of 500 different uh, theories they've put out there just to obfuscate the fact that the name comes from Saraswati. (laughs) So... um, that's how it is they have got all these different opinions and theses but the fact is that the country's name the country is named after the indian river saraswati and therefore your grandfather what he taught you that your people lived in iran and in india is most likely correct right so uh, the the word hrvatska comes from the persian old persian haravat which comes from the Sanskrit Saraswati. So most likely what that indicates is that the ancient Vedic Indians that traveled to Persia, some of them eventually traveled further westwards and they settled down in this part of Europe, which is now known as Hrvatska or Croatia, which would indicate an Indian origin to the Slavic peoples, you know, deep ancient Indian origin to the Slavic peoples. This obviously is not proven yet. There are all kinds of tests that need to be done. But this is very strong circumstantial evidence. So what you say is most likely indeed correct. Akash says, what if the u s. falls and China becomes the global hegemon? How would it affect India? and if it's worse was does it mean that mean that the u s currently being the biggest player, the superpower, the sole superpower, is it serving India more or less? you know there's a there's a saying in Chinese. The mountains are high and the emperor is far away. What it means is that when you are far away from the source of power, you have a certain amount of uh, liberty as to what you do and what follows, what, what policies you follow and how you live your life. If the emperor lives right next to you, you have to be very, very careful. The further the emperor is, especially if you, there are high mountains between you and the emperor, then you have more liberty and more freedom to live your life as you please as long as you don't offend the emperor too much. What, is it, what am I trying to say? The US is half a world away from India. It's essentially on the other side of the planet, if you take the curvature of the planet into account. So the US is the global hegemon, but does it, does it mean that this, this arrangement is serving India? Not quite so much. And think about it this way. If India was right next to the US, would it be serving India? There's another country that's right next to the U.S., Mexico. Now, everything that's happened in Mexico over the past 200 or so years has been orchestrated by the U.S. There, has, there have been wars against Mexico. A significant amount of their territory has been conquered and so on. And even today, whatever's happening in Mexico is either directly or indirectly related to U.S. foreign policy. So because Mexico is so close, they are affected to a much greater extent by US policies because India is so far away it is affected to a lesser extent but the situation doesn't serve India. I mean we can just take a look at our ancient history. I mean the 20th century history of India and global affairs to see what I mean. Look at what happened in 1971. Did it serve India? I mean the US was, was on the side of Pakistan. They allowed the Pakistanis to conduct a genocide in India in in Bangladesh, which is essentially in Indian territory for thousands of years. And uh, they sent their aircraft carrier to the Bay of Bengal to intimidate and coerce India into allowing Pakistan to get what it wants. Did not work because the USSR also intervened and so on. And we know other examples of what the US has been indulging in, in this Indian subcontinent. They have always, uh, for the longest time, supported Pakistan. Essentially now that in India and the US are more closely Uh, aligned together, not allied, but aligned together in certain aspects, it doesn't really serve India beyond a certain point. The US doesn't want India to rise too much, not beyond a certain point. India doesn't, they don't want India to become a new threat in the future, a big player, like the Chinese became eventually. The Americans helped China rise and now see what happened. Now China is the biggest threat to the US. So they don't want India to again be the next China, right? So whatever's going on, whatever alignment we have between the between the U.S. and India right now, it doesn't serve India beyond a certain point. It doesn't serve India beyond the point that it ceases to serve the U.S. Right? That's what it is. Now, what if the U.S. falls and China becomes a global hegemon? How will it affect India? Well, if China succeeds in becoming the global hegemon, India will become what Mexico is to the U.S. today. So, as like, like I just said, the Americans took out enormous bites out of Mexican territory. The whole of California belonged to Mexico. The whole of Texas belonged to Mexico. Look up look up the history. And some part of California is still with Mexico. Baja California and those regions, you know. Uh, and so on. So uh, if China succeeds in becoming the next superpower, it eclipses the US, displaces the US and replaces the US as the next superpower, then India will be in the same situation as Mexico is in today. Right? And just look at the history of Mexico over the past 150, 200 years, and you will know what I mean. Look it up. Look it up. Come on, do some homework. So, that is what India will have to endure and suffer, which means loss of territory, which means uh, military humiliation, which means uh, vassal state status, and much worse. Right? So, that is what will happen to India if China succeeds. So does it mean we want the U.S. to continue? No, we want a multipolar world, a world with three or four major poles, a world in a reasonable state of equilibrium, a world with a genuine rules-based global order, not this fake, you know, arbitrary rules-based order, whatever they say is the rule. Tomorrow they change the rule and that's a new rule. doesn't work like that. We need an actual system that is uh, that is equal and, and uh, which uh, takes everybody into account. So that's what we need. Okay, this is by Shweta. Um, So your geopolitics update on Ranveer uh, show, 205, it was very interesting. You are Well, thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much. The question is, um, what's your vision? What's your definition of staying strong to achieve peace? What should India be doing and not be doing uh, in the coming times? So I had said, and I've said here also on this channel as well, that you can only have peace through strength. If you are weak, you can never have peace, you'll be broken apart by others and you'll be exploited by others, those who are stronger than you. Peace can only be achieved through strength. You cannot have peace through love and all that, you know, peace through strength. So what's my vision? It's very simple. I would like India to to reclaim its position, its historical position as the greatest economy in the world and the greatest civilization and culture in the world. And that can only come through strength. Look at the times when India has been all powerful and has been uh, prosperous and successful. It's always been when you know, India was unified under a strong central leadership. Whether it was during the Mauryan era, the Kushan era, the Gupta era, uh, the Lalitaditya Muktapida era, the Chola era, or whatever, India has done well only when it has been when it has been strong and unified, politically unified, right under a strong central leadership. So, the vision is very clear. I would like India to reclaim its historical position as the number one economy in the world and the uh, most advanced uh, scientific and technological civilization in the world. So, that can only happen when you have long-term peace for a couple of centuries. Only then can a civilization flower and prosper. If you are constantly under attack, which you will be if you are not strong enough, then you will never have this sort of flowering, this sort of cultural renaissance. So India needs to become economically and militarily powerful. That is the only vision. That's the only way it's going to happen. So to achieve peace, India needs to strengthen its economy. India needs to grow its economy. India, in The Indian economy is currently around $3 trillion, the GDP, right? $3 trillion, which is like a moderately respectable economy. We need to first reach $5 trillion and then $10 trillion. So if India grows at the rate of around 7% per year, the economy, it will take about 15 years to reach $10 trillion. If we grow at 10%, it will take roughly nine or 10 years to reach $10 trillion. So what India needs anyhow is two decades of peace, at least a decade, but ideally two decades of peace. If we can have two decades of peace, then we can reach 10 or even $15 trillion trillion Uh, the, the, of GDP, you know, the, our, our economy, if we reach that position, then essentially we are invulnerable to other threats because we will be so economically and militarily powerful that nobody will dare challenge us. That's essentially where China is today. And the reason why China sees military threats everywhere is that is because they are militarily and territorially, territorially expansionist. We have never been that way. I don't wish India to become another China Uh, an expansionist nation. All we want is to reunify the subcontinent on a 100-year timeline or so, because that is our ancient ancestral territory. And that is is something that is a just cause that we would like to see achieved. So that is the long-term vision. India regaining its uh, historic position, which has always been its rightful position in the world, as the greatest economy and the uh, number one civilization which it always was and we don't mind uh, to have a sister civilization in china we don't we don't wish them anything bad but hey don't mess with us that's all so to stay strong we have to grow economically as your economy expands and you have more money available you can invest more in the military and that's how your military also becomes more powerful you can modernize your military and expand your military invest in the right things a bigger navy a bigger space force better, various other things, right? So that's what India should be doing. What should India not be doing? India should not be, uh, we don't want internal conflicts. One of the major problems in India is the possibility of internal conflicts, which are essentially fomented and financed by external factors. So that is something we need to be very careful about and ensure that nobody is able to interfere in our internal matters. Right now it's happening. So that's something we need to take care of in the coming years. It's a slow process. It's not easy. There are certain external forces that are way too powerful for us. And it's not like like we can shut them down tomorrow. As we grow grow more powerful, we will have more leverage against these, these forces. So the simple solution is grow economically and grow militarily. If you grow economically, you will also grow militarily. So our entire focus should be on rebuilding the nation, rebuilding the economy. We had the greatest economy. It was destroyed. Now we will rebuild it. We need to accelerate the process and go full steam at that. So that's what needs to happen. Okay, Rahul Sharma says, I went abroad to study, returned after... Returned, leaving my study there unfinished. I wanted to do something for India and generate employment. After four years, I successfully did that, achieved a lot. Sometimes I doubt, will India be actually a superpower until 2050? Will there be a civil war breaking us or something that will not let us develop to a significant level? Because even after returning from Australia, I worry if someday I have to leave India again. Yes or no, what's the percentage of those chances? See, there is always a chance for any nation of something bad happening. What you can do as a nation and especially as the leadership group is to minimize the probability of such things happening, which means you that you stay awake and you stay alert to all the potential threats that you are facing right now, the visible threats and the threats that are hidden to the public. There are things happening that we don't, we cannot see right now that we cannot even imagine right now. There are forces at play right now in the global order that don't want India to rise. The leadership of India wants India to rise. So there is this constant friction and this interplay of opposing forces that we are seeing at work right now. And that's something that goes on in every large or major nation in the world. So will India become a superpower till 2050? I mean, that all depends on the definition of superpower. One of the simplest definitions of superpower is a $15 trillion economy. If India grows at even 7% per year, by 2050, we will be beyond $15 trillion of GDP, maybe even 20. So if things continue just at a moderate rate, 7% GDP growth per year, we will become an economic and of course a military superpower by 2050 for sure. So we are on track for that. The only question is, will we have... 20 years of peace because we have multiple enemies. Look at our neighborhood. Look at the nations that that, that essentially surround India. We have China, which occupies Tibet. Therefore, the, therefore, they are our neighbors now. The Chinese don't wish India well. They see India as the major, one major obstacle in Eurasia that can counter them and we have pakistan which is which has been a puppet of other uh, uh, a client state firstly of the us and now it is a client state of, of the chinese and uh, it is used to destabilize and counterbalance india right so these are the very visible visible threats that we are facing right now we also have various internal threats that are fi- funded financed and aided and abetted from outside india from by various powerful forces beyond our borders yes And we have various uh, geopolitical scenarios, we have the possibility of a coming recession, the inflation is rising and so many things. So the world is always an uncertain place. And that is, so whether India reaches its status or not, depends on the leadership. We have good leadership today. We have the best leadership in living memory in India today. And hopefully we will have even better leadership in the coming uh, years. We can see that coming on the horizon, hopefully. So as long as we have strong leadership, things will be fine. I personally am very optimistic. I don't see a civil war breaking out. I don't see uh, the nation breaking up. I don't see any major foreign um, uh, military mis- misadventure against India. Because we have the right deterrence. And the uh, the major threat comes from the Chinese. There's always the possibility. Of, uh, see, what's happening right now in China is that there is a the nation is aging rapidly. This one-child policy that they have had for a long time, it's now now coming back to bite them in the backside. Their nation is aging. The workflow, the workforce is getting older. The economy is slowing down. The the, the GDP growth is slowing down significantly. Uh, the numbers they are reporting may be. Even even the numbers that they are reporting right now may be exaggerated. So there is a st- in, in stagnation of the economy that we are that we are seeing in many problems, many such problems. and they may may get desperate. and they may feel that let's grab whatever we can before it's too late, before our economy goes into a recession and our population becomes too old. So that may put them in panic mode and tempt the Chinese Communist Party's leadership to indulge in some kind of military misadventure, possibly in Taiwan, possibly against us in India. That could be something that would be very counterproductive for them, especially when it comes to India, because we have the deterrent, the the ultimate deterrent, which we all know about, and we also have a good position when it comes to the military situation, the military chessboard in Tibet and in the Himalayan region. So I... I'm optimistic. We have the right things in place more or less. All we need is to make sure that everyone knows that we are willing to do whatever it takes to defend our country. And hopefully we can have 10, 15, 20 years of peace. If we have that, then peace is essentially guaranteed because we'll be too too big to uh, essentially take any chances against. So the next decade is critical. And beyond that, the forthcoming decade the 2030s will also be very important for us but what's important for us right now is the 2020s. it's the most critical decade of for India in the past since 1947 essentially. the 2020s are the most important decade for India since 1947 since, since the 1940s if we get things right now we'll be in a very good situation. So I am not concerned about whether we become a superpower or not right now. Right now, I'm not concerned about that. Right now, I'm concerned about us navigating this decade properly. We don't want to make too too many enemies. We don't want to ruffle too many feathers. We want to keep our heads down, keep quiet and work and build up our economy. First, the first milestone is $5 trillion. The next milestone is $10 trillion. We can get there in 15 years maximum if we get things right. Right. The Indian economy has enormous potential for growth. We are just at the starting point. There is so much potential in the country. If our leadership harnesses the potential properly and navigates the international geopolitical minefield prudently, we will definitely be a superpower by 2050. So that is how I see things. That's how I see things going. I am overall quite optimistic about this. Saurabh says, why wouldn't anyone take astronomical data in Sanskrit scriptures to date them? We know that most of them were correct, and they can only be recorded by someone who, and and so on, as it's nearly impossible to fabricate astronomical data after thousands of years. That is correct. That's a good question. What you're talking about is archaeoastronomy. So it's like this the stars and the planets, they move along predictable paths in the sky in the course of a night or a month or a year or a century or even thousands of years. There is even uh, the 23,000 year old, the 23,000 year cycle called the precession of the equinoxes, which is how the the axis of the earth rotates uh, over time. So all of these movements of the stars and the planets, etc., they follow very clear laws, the laws of celestial mechanics, which comes from Newtonian mechanics. So it is which, and because of that, it's impossible to fabricate or invent celestial data. Let's say I'm fabricate, I'm writing a new text, which I, I'm gonna claim is the old version of some ancient text. And I put in some astronomical data in there out of my own imagination, it simply doesn't work you can, if you are an astronomer, you can tell almost very, very quickly that it's fabricated data. Because today we have all these various kinds of uh, various softwares that can uh, that can backdate the positions of stars and planets, planets s- several centuries back, even several millennia back. It doesn't work with comets and other things, but certainly for stars and also for most planets, right? So it's impossible to fabricate Celestial or astronomical data. And what we know for sure is that our ancient texts have an enormous amount of astronomical data encoded within. Because our ancestors were astronomers, they used to uh, record celestial events, astronomical events, the positions of, of stars and constellations and whatnot. And all of our ancient texts, like the Mahabharata, in the Ramayana, have astronomical data that corresponds to various events. It's it's all recorded. The, so therefore, it should be possible to date these texts based on the astronomical data that these texts contain. So why has it not happened? Many people have tried this. Many people have come up with various claims of the dates of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and various other events, right? And they they all have different dates. (laughs) Why is it so? The answer is because is that all of these scholars, they have interpreted the Sanskrit texts differently. So when you have different interpretations, and when you calculate the dates based on your personal interpretation, and when somebody has a different interpretation of the text, you will arrive at different dates. So right now, what we are witnessing is that there is a whole cacophony going on of these various researchers of the Mahabharata and Ramayan who have used the astronomical data and translated that from Sanskrit to whatever language works best for them and then calculated dates and they all have different dates and they're all fighting amongst each other very publicly about who is right. So that's where we are today. Lots of people have tried this and lots of people, they have all come up with different dates. And that's where we are today. So what needs to happen is uh, each of these claims, first of all, there's, there needs to be a proper scientific committee of astronomers who can do the calculation and verify all of these claims. And first of all, you need somebody who can reliably translate from Sanskrit into Hindi or English or whichever language, which can then be given to the astronomers to do their calculations. So right now we are witnessing this unfortunate very public fight among all these people i don't have any per- preferred date because i haven't checked all the ca- all the calculations myself it's a very long tedious task it's not a fight that is for me that's not my fight that's not my task i cannot take up every single project in the world right so as of now uh, i don't have a horse in this race there are multiple horses all vying for the prime position everyone is claiming my claim my my calculations are right Listen, I don't have any preferred uh, person. I don't have any preferred date. Let's see how it goes. The answers are all there in the texts. The only problem is that they are all translating in a different way. And that's why they are coming up with different dates. So, so that's where we are today. So it can be done. It will be done eventually when the time is right. Okay, Swarup Vaidya says, Why does the US want a ban on ASAT? missile testing, anti-satellite missile testing for all countries including themselves. Won't it hurt their own national interest also? Well, why will it hurt their own national interest? They have already done all the tests they would want to do. So it's like this. See, uh, the Americans have been conducting anti-satellite missile tests since the 1950s that's when the the concept first emerged, and they have been testing this uh, this anti satellite uh, technology since the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. The USSR also uh, did multiple tests, beginning in the nineteen sixties, I believe, and there have been there have been lots of tests conducted, tests from ground tests, from ship tests, from uh, air launched missiles, missiles launched from fighter planes, and whatnot. They have done lots of tests and uh, they have essentially perfected the technology. Right? So that's point number one. Secondly, recently more countries have tried this out. The Chinese did a test I think in 2017 and something more recently maybe 2017. Uh, the first Chinese test that I remember was, was from 2007, I believe. And there was at least one more test in more recent times done by the Chinese. And as you I'm sure all you're all aware, India also did a test in 2019, I believe. Mission Shakti, which was a successful test, we destroyed one of our own satellites to validate the technology and it worked. So as of today, as far as I am, as far as I understand, there are four nations with ASAT technology: the US, the, the Russians, India, and China. Now, the US and the Russians have the most advanced technology. They've done lots of tests. Um, so as far as the Americans are concerned, they have kind of perfected the technology. I'm not sure if they can take out a satellite from geostationary orbit, which is 36,000 kilometers or so roughly. But certainly they can take out satellites from low earth orbit and higher orbits as well. We, India, we have taken out one satellite from low earth orbit around 300 or so kilometers above the surface of the planet. Now, why does the US want a ban or a moratorium? Because firstly, they have essentially perfected the technology. They don't have any more testing to do, just like the nuclear weapons ban. So there is this uh, CTBD, right? the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, nuclear weapons testing. The Americans did hundreds, maybe thousands of tests in the 20th century. And when they had all the data they needed and they, when they had perfected their weapons design, that's when they imposed the ban and various countries signed it. And India missed the bus. We could have also tested nuclear weapons in the 1970s and all, all that, but we decided not to. And when we did test in 1998, there was this entire uh, slew of sanctions imposed upon India. And this time India has been smart. We tested an ASAT weapon before any such talk of a ban happened. And that's why we are now in the big club, the club of four, the four nations that have anti-satellite missile technology. So the US wants a ban because they no longer need to do any more tests. So once you have done all your tests, you impose a ban, and then you prevent other nations from testing the technology. Very smart, isn't it? And there's another reason as well. One of the ways of killing a satellite is through a kinetic kill weapon like an anti-satellite missile. But there are other ways of killing satellites. You could kill a satellite with lasers. You can kill a satellite using laser weapons if you have a powerful enough laser which can be targeted, aimed accurately at a satellite. So the Americans have been uh, testing laser weapons for quite some time. And uh, yeah, so they may have now, by now, the technology to destroy a satellite using a laser. A laser is essentially a very concentrated beam of light. So that's one thing. The other way of destroying or disabling a satellite is by hacking it cyber warfare so you could essentially take over a satellite hijack a satellite and make it do weird stuff what it's not designed to do just by hacking it taking taking it over using cyber warfare you could disable it you could destroy its uh, its uh, chip its chip architecture or whatever or you could make it you can take it over and use it against the parent country if you have the cyber warfare capabilities to do that And such things have happened in recent times. Such things have happened. A spacecraft have been hijacked and made to do things that they were not supposed to do. And such things have happened. I will not give you examples, but it's possible. It has happened. The US has the ability to do that. The Russians for sure have the ability. The Chinese also have the ability to hack and hijack a satellite. So when you have laser weapons, when you can take over a satellite and disable it electronically through cyber means, then why do you need ASAT weapons? So now that these new technologies have emerged, ASAT weapons don't make a lot of sense. So the US wants to impose a ban or a moratorium on ASAT testing. And of course they will want to uh, impose that on the rest of the world. So that it, so that other countries cannot acquire the technology by means of testing it. So that's how it is. So it will not hurt their national interest. They've moved on to other forms of technology, and they're just fine. And they will ban those forms of technology only after they've perfected that as that also. So that's how it goes. Next question by Marcus. Uh, Marcus. <laughs> Uh, The question is, why do so many people from the Indian subcontinent live in Cyprus? Hmm. Does this have something to do with, anything to do with the political situation and the division of the island in 1974 after the war? What is India's relationship like with each side, Greek and Turkish? Thank you so much. Okay, this is an interesting question. Do you guys, ladies, gents all know where Cyprus is? So you know what's coming. I'm going to share my screen and show you the map. Okay, where is the island of Cyprus? It is definitely not in the Indian Ocean region. Cyprus is in the Mediterranean. So as you know, this here is India. You know where India is? Let's go westwards, further west, further west. And this here now is the Mediterranean Sea. And this island here is the island of Cyprus. Now, historically, this has been Greek territory. But today, it is divided into. It is the, the island is essentially partitioned today. If you can see on the map, there is a no man's land. The northern part of Cyprus is now under Turkish occupation, and the southern part of Cyprus is under Greek control. Originally, it was entirely under Greek control. In 1974, or whatever the date is, the Turks invaded and took over uh, the northern part of the island. The capital city, Nicosia, itself is a city that's divided into two. The Turkish portion and the Greek portion. So that is the story of Cyprus. That's the situation that we have today. Uh, It lies to the south of Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea and to the west of Syria and Lebanon. So that's where Cyprus is today. I hope that uh, that explains where Cyprus is geographically. Now let's come back to the question. Uh, The question is, why do many people from the Indian subcontinent, especially India, why do so many people from this region live in Cyprus? Many of them have the citizenship of Cyprus. Well, I'll tell you one, I'll give you a clue. They all have, they are all millionaires. They all have a few million dollars to burn or invest, so to say. So there is something called citizenship by investment which means that you can you have to invest a certain amount of money in in a certain country and they will offer you citizenship in exchange so uh so countries countries like cyprus have this system this program uh i believe jamaica also has it a couple of countries in the caribbean region offer this whether it's the whether it's jamaica or some other country in the caribbean but there is certainly at least one country that i kind of remember in the caribbean that offers citizenship by investment the Australians offer you something similar. Even the New Zealanders offer you something similar. Uh, something similar exists in Spain, in Portugal as well. In the US, you have something called a golden visa, which, which means that if you invest, I think, how much is it? One million dollars in a US business, then you get a green card and there are various such programs in various parts of the world. Essentially, what it means is that you can buy a green card or a citizenship. A green card is One step close, uh, one step away from citizenship. In Cyprus, you can, I think, obtain citizenship right away or within three to six months if you invest a certain amount of money in the country. And I'm not sure what the amount of money is. You can look it up, Google it. I think it will be in excess of a million dollars, if I am not mistaken, if I remember correctly. And you also have to buy some property. You have to buy a very expensive house and invest some money in Cyprus. If you do that, within a few months, you get a passport. And then you can choose to give up your Indian passport, or just quietly retain it. No, if no one knows, many people actually illegally retain two passports. In India, the law is such that if you obtain the citizenship of an, another country, then you have to give up your, you have to uh, surrender your Indian passport immediately. Which means you can not have dual citizenship if you are Indian. But there are certain people. I'm not naming anybody in names, but there are certain people who quietly retain their Indian passport as well. So. The answer is very simple. Cy- Cyprus offers uh, citizenship by investment. And that's why there are so many people from India, many people from India who live there and who have a Cyprus passport. And what's the, what is the benefit of having a passport from Cyprus? Well, the benefit is that Cyprus is part of the European Union. If you have a Cyprus uh, passport, Cypriot passport, then you can move to any part of the EU, the European Union, and you don't need a visa to go there which essentially opens up much of Western Europe to you. Just that passport. You don't need a visa to go there. So it uh, it offers you greater mobility and uh, and uh, such other benefits and advantages. And that's why lots of people opt to essentially purchase a passport of from Cyprus if you have enough money. So that's the answer. And that's why lots of Indians live there and, ha- and have citizenship there. What's India's relationship like like with each side, Greek and Turkish? India's relationship with Turkey is, um, well, it's okay. Not the friendliest of, of relationships. The Turks, as we know, they support Pakistan in most matters, which is automatically going to guarantee that India and Turkey don't have a very good relationship. When it comes to India and Greece... I'm not sure what the relationship is like. I mean, historically, if you go back 3000 years, then India and Greece had very strong uh, close ties from the perspective of trade and culture and history and whatnot. But as of today, I'm not sure what the relationship is like. Greece is not a very important country. It's not a very big uh, major country in Europe. It is not a very strong or powerful country, either economically or geopolitically or militarily. So it's not very high on India's radar when it comes to geopolitics, but I am sure India and Greece have a warm, friendly and cordial relationship, no major issues as such. So that is what I can tell you. Okay, next question is by Shamantha Pawar. The question is, India is referred to as a developing country. When is a country fully developed? What is the role of Indian culture, languages and values in the development of the country? Thank you in advance. Okay, good question there is no a uh, clear definition of what is a developing country and a developed country one of the ways of looking at it as is that um, developing countries are low income countries fully developed countries or industrialized countries are high income countries and there is something in between which is middle income nations so when you talk about a low income nation it's typically an income less than $5000 per capita 5,000 US dollars per capita. Right now, India's per capita GDP will be somewhere around $2,000 per capita, which is which is low income. So that's why India is a low income country or a developing country. China is now a middle income country. Its a GDP per capita is around $10,000. So it's not quite a, an industrialized nation, but it's a rapidly industrializing nation. And then you have nations like the US, the UK, Western Europe and all, which have very high GDP per capita numbers maybe to upwards of $20,000 per, per capita, maybe $30,000, dollars $50,000 per capita, depending on which nation it is. Australia, I would imagine, would have a GDP per capita of more than $50,000. So those are the fully developed, fully industrialized nations. So that's also the distinction between the first world, the second world, and the third world. The second world is essentially the middle-income middle nations and the third world is low income nation so by that definition india is still currently part of the third world once india reaches uh, india's gdp reaches the 15 trillion dollar mark that's when india will become more or less a middle income nation give it another 20 years we should be there if things go well so that's when india is no longer a developing country but a near developed country or so so something like that so that is roughly how it is. The difference between a developing country, a fully developed country, and a rapidly developing or so country, right? Uh, what's the role of Indian culture, languages, and values in the development of the country? None whatsoever. When we're talking about the development of a country, we're talking about material development. There are certain de- nations that have that don't have the greatest or the most. Uh, advanced culture. I'm I'm talking about historically. Let's not, uh, I'm not naming any specific country but historically let's talk about Rome, the Roman Empire. Rome was never a civilization. Rome was always an empire. And they borrowed culture from the Greeks and other places. Their culture was never the greatest. And yet they were the most uh, advanced, widespread and developed uh, empire of that time in Europe. Right? So it's all about material development. It's all about the size of your economy, GDP per capita, overall GDP, your military strength. That is what we take into consideration when we talk about development. You may have the most advanced con- culture in the world, but if your country is a low income country, no one's going to respect you and no one's going to consider you to be a developed country. So there is no, I mean, see, let's not get it wrong. Culture, languages, values, all that is very important from us, from a cultural perspective, from a long-term, for a, from a long-term civilizational perspective. We cannot neglect that. But when it comes to our global standing, economic standing, and geopolitical standing, it's all about material development. It's all about hard power. It's all about hard power. So let's stop obsessing about soft power for some time, until we reach the fifteen trillion dollar mark, and then we'll talk. All right. So that is the only thing that matters in your global standing. Economically, militarily, and geopolitically. If you're talking about global respect, they'll respect you only if you're strong from an economic and military perspective. Your culture doesn't matter. These days, if you notice, if you travel internationally, you will notice that there is a little more respect that you get if you're Indian. People, there is a people have a better uh, opinion of India these days. It's because India is now developing rapidly. India is standing up for itself economically, militarily and geopolitically. India is showing spine for the first time in 70 years. That's why Indians who travel abroad get a little more respect than they used to than they used to get 20 years ago. So it's all about material progress and material development. That's all it is. Asmita says, why is there no minimum educational qualification required to become a politician in India? Is it, pos- is it possible and practical to have a formal education system, and a degree mandatory for people who want to become politicians, where the cali- curriculum includes topics like geopolitics, history, macroeconomics, and so on? Also, why does the constitution consider voting as a right? Is it, why is it not a duty? Yeah, all right, mm-hmm, good question. I think it is a. Well, it's it's a. Very good question. It's a good sentiment, but I don't think it's practical because if it were practical, some country in the world would have implemented something like this. Even if you look at the US, if you look at Western Europe, if you look at all the developed nations, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, France, or any other country in the world, none of these nations has such a requirement of some kind of educational qualification, which is a prerequisite for uh, standing for public office or becoming a politician so it's not polit- uh, it's not uh, feasible simply because everybody has the right to vote in a democracy and similarly everybody has the right to stand for election uh, ideally that would, that would be great i think it it makes sense for people who want to stand for leadership positions to actually have some kind of background in these uh, matters we need some reasonable understanding of science especially physics Also, economics, history, geopolitics, what is power? What is the national interest? You would need, it would be great if politicians had a good background and a solid understanding of that. But uh, it is not feasible because of various factors. First of all, let's take India itself. Our education system is terrible. Even if you were to offer a degree in, in something like this, like leadership, what is the guarantee that that degree is going to is going to mean something is going to actually make a person understand things in india in the indian education system if you want to pass a degree if you want to acquire a degree you only have to pass an exam you have to memorize stuff and then write long essays in a 3 hour exam and if you perform that ritual properly you get the degree it doesn't mean that you have actually learned anything lots of people acquire degrees without actually understanding any subject. Our education system is so terrible. And so are many other education systems around the world. I mean, today the US education system is going backwards. It's become a joke. It's increasingly becoming more and more of a joke. I mean, just look at what the professors have to say. Look at what, I mean, just a couple of examples. Jordan Peterson, Gad Saad. Peterson is from Canada. Gad Saad is also from Canada, I believe. But there are plenty of people from the US as well. And just see what they have to say about their own education system in North America. It's going from bad to worse. So when you have a broken education system, then having a degree doesn't mean that the kids are the degree holder will actually have some knowledge about this stuff. So it's like that. So there are a variety of reasons why it has never been implemented historically and even today. And it's always possible that a person who doesn't hold a degree may actually be way better educated than a person who has acquired a degree. You see cases like that all the time. Uh, talk about Freeman Dyson, one of the greatest physicists of all time. Uh, he's uh, the the uh, inventor or or the person who put, put forth the Dyson sphere. One of the visionary physicists of the 20th century. He did not have a PhD and he's one of the greats. So there are lots of examples like that. So, uh, a degree doesn't guarantee anything and even studying a subject doesn't guarantee anything. That the person will actually learn anything. So there's a variety of factors why this has never been practically feasible. Uh, why does the constitution consider voting as a right? Why not a duty? Well, ask the people who framed the constitution. They blindly copied a patchwork of Western constitutions one piece from here, one piece from there and put it all together in a weird patchwork and that's what the Indian constitution is. Uh, Maybe it should be a duty. So yeah, uh, I've said this multiple times that we need to revisit our constitution when the time is right. We need a new constitution, a better constitution, a constitution that is grounded and rooted in Indian civilizational values and which Puts the Indian national interest front and center. Right now, the constitution does not do that. So, yeah, it needs to happen eventually when the time is right. Maybe the time is not right. Right now, perhaps. Okay. Um, Shankhajit Ghosh Dasidhar says, What's the solution against regular mass shootings in the US? The U.S. Second Amendment gives citizens rights to acquire and bear guns because they had fought for the nation's independence. However, the mass shootings are happening regularly for years and nothing substantial is being done. You are right, nothing substantial is being done. And funnily enough, I mean tragically actually, there's only one nation, one country where this happens on a regular basis. is the U.S. And yet the, the politicians there uh, claim that nothing can be done about this. If you are the only country where this sort of thing happens on a routine basis then why can't something be done The mothers Just learn from the other nations which where this doesn't happen. What are they doing with what that you're not doing? Take India. This never happens in India. And one of the reasons is because it's very, very, very hard to obtain a gun license. You can't have a personal firearm without having a license and it's next to impossible to obtain a gun license. In the U.S., you can walk into a grocery store or a supermarket and and buy a gun and various kinds of rifles, various kinds of semi-automatic weapons and various kinds of bump stocks, etc., that can transform your semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic machine gun. There was this uh, terrible tragedy in Las Vegas uh, two or three years ago. Uh, more than 50 people lost their lives and more than two, 300 people were injured. There was a, f- a gunman firing uh, at, at a crowd in a concert from a hotel with automatic weapons. I mean, it, he was using a bump stock that, tra- that transformed a semi-automatic rifle into an automatic rifle. And this thing happens all the time. It's because it's so easy to acquire guns in the US. There are more guns than people in, in this country. Right? And Society in the US has become such that people don't trust each other. people are scared of each other. And so you have these tragedies happening on an r- almost daily basis. since I, I had read this weird statistic somewhere since 1950 or 1960 or whatever, more Americans have died in domestic gun violence than the number of soldiers, American soldiers that died since 19 that died since the American War of Independence. So that's what's happening in the nation. It's a nation that's gone crazy. Then we know, they know what needs to be done. All they have to do is to ban guns. But they have the second amendment, which gives the uh, citizens the right to bear arms. And there is this very powerful gun lobby, firearms lobby, which which makes billions of dollars selling guns. And they want to protect that, that source of revenue. So. It's always capitalism over the interest of the people. It's always commercial interests over the interests of the people. That's what US society is. Terrible, 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 terrible. What can I say? That's why this is something that keeps going on and on. It keeps happening every week nowadays. It's just terrible and sad to see that. What's happening? I mean, in schools, kids, terrible. So... We all know what the politicians need to do, but they won't do it. Why is that? Well, because politicians have interests, various kinds of interests. Maybe they are hand in glove with various industries and that's how it goes. So that's why this thing keeps on happening. Okay, Tejas says, why did India return the Georgian queen's relics in 2021? What's the history and significance of this? So if you want the exact details, I would recommend that you watch my podcast with Dr. Neeraj Rai, in which there is a segment in which we discuss this. And it was Dr. Neeraj Rai and and his team that had worked on this case. So I don't remember what the dates are and all that, but there was this queen from Georgia who was held hostage by which? By one of the kings in a neighboring country from, not sure whether it's Azerbaijan or some Turkic nation, Turkic kingdom. She was held hostage for, I think, over a decade. And eventually she was murdered on the orders of the king and uh, murdered in, in a terrible way. Now, her relics, her body, she was Christian and this queen was a Muslim king or whatever, that's how the story goes. So after she was murdered her body was transported by her followers to India. I believe it was to Goa or some such place and it was buried there apparently. Right? and this matter is like more than two, three hundred years old, if I'm not mistaken, you can look up the exact dates. The name is Queen Ketevan, K-E-T-E-V-A-N. Look it up, Google it, and you'll find the exact details. I'm giving you the broad picture. Now, um, so recently, some bones were found in this this place, and uh, I believe there was a request from the Georgian government to the Indian government to investigate this case, if possible, uh, locate the relics of the queen and see if a, a positive identification is possible. So a number of bones were found and Dr. joy and his team, they did genetic uh, analysis of these bones and they were able to identify a, a set of bones in which you had a haplogroup or a lineage, a, a genetic lineage that is found in Georgia, not India. And that means that it is most likely that, that those bones belong to that queen because we know that that queen's body and her bones were transported to India and buried in this location. And that's how they were able to identify the dead queen's bones, her relics after such a long time. And then the Indian government repatriated those relics to the home country of Queen Kethewan, which is Georgia. So it's a It's a good deed that we did. After all these years, after centuries, we sent her body back to her homeland where she can be buried and put to rest honorably. So it's a good thing we did and that is, that is why we did that, just to do a good deed and to strengthen our relations with this nation, Georgia. So that in very brief is the story. If you want a, a more detailed explanation, look up my podcast on this channel the podcast, the conversation that I had with Dr. Neeraj Rai. And I'm sure there's plenty of uh, material available online as well. You can Google it. Queen Ketevan. All right. <clears throat> okay, this is by Akash. The What's the term martial races mean? I'm just aware of the fact that the British preferred and enlisted most of the military personnel from these so-called races, which included Rajputs, Jats, Gurjars, etc. Does it make any sense historically and scientifically, as you once said, that races don't mean anything, scientifically speaking? So the term the British used is martial races, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, martial, which means the, the term that we use, martial arts. M A R T I A L, martial, which, which means uh, military, kind of military, which is something to do with, with something to do with warfare. So the martial races—it's a term that the British coined—was used to designate certain ethnic, supposed ethnic groups in India. One of these was the Rajputs. One of these was the Sikhs and the Jats and the Gurjars. I believe that. Um, the Pashtuns may have been included in this, and also the Gorkhas, if I am not mistaken. So a number of these so-called races or ethnicities were designated by the British as martial races. And this was, I believe, part of the old policy, good old policy of divide and conquer. You give certain people or certain strata of society, certain extra privileges, you make them feel like you are they are superior in some way. And that buys you their loyalty. So that's the kind of thing they did. It was part of the policy of divide and rule. The British were past masters at that. So they designated certain ethnicities or certain people, certain certain Indian uh, groups, ethnic groups as martial races. And what they would do is that they would hire from these so-called martial races exclusive, almost exclusively into the British Indian army. So that's why they created these various regiments named after various so called martial races. The Rajput regiment, Rajputana rifles, and the Sikh regiment, Jat regiment, Gorkha regiment, and so on and so forth. So that was the strategy, the policy that they used. And it's something we are still continuing today. We still have the same colonial names given to various regiments which is not the right thing in my opinion. Uh, anyhow, so that is the policy the British used. Now scientifically, we all know, I mean, races are not really a scientific thing. Scientifically, there is no real concept of race, a pure race. That's, scientifically, it's nonsense. If you look at genetic studies, there is no delineation between race X and race Y. Even in India, there is this talk for the past 200 years of the Dravidian race and the Aryan race, where genetically we are all the same. We are very much the same. And therefore, the entire concept of race has no basis in science. It's unscientific, it's pseudo scientific. It is a pseudo scientific and racist concept. So, it makes no sense historically and scientifically. Okay, Divya Rabari says, you've spoken about keeping the group you trust large and the people you needed to keep in power and to keep you in power small. Can you share some more laws on power? Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's about the laws of power, right? the hidden laws of power. Power trumps money and how you come to power, how you remain in power and so on, how you expand your power base and all that stuff. So one of the rules of power is that you keep the group that you trust or the group of people that is loyal to you as large as possible. And the second law is that you keep the group of people you rely on, the indispensable people, you keep that group as small as possible. Right? That's two things. The third law, let me add one more law in there, is that you use money to buy loyalty. So that this group that you want to make as large as possible that can be bought with money, right? I mean, if you look at the policy of any dictator, you will see that happening again. You will see that uh, that being uh, carried out again and again, whether it's Saddam Hussein, whether it's Kim Jong Un, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party, or any other dictatorship that you have seen in in history, these are the laws. These are the rules to follow. Keep the group of people you who that are indispensable to you keep that group as small as possible, keep the people who are loyal to you, that group as large as possible, and use money to buy more loyalty. So as you become powerful, you can use money as fuel to buy more power. But if you have a lot of money, but no power, you can't do anything with that. So uh, that's how power works. It's It's like a corporation, you have a big company. Let's say you have Fortune 500 company, and you are the person who is the biggest, largest shareholder, you have a group of people who work for you—the CEO, the COO, the CFO, etc. There are there are there's a small group of people who are indispensable to the running of the company. You keep that group as small as possible, and then you hire employees with the money that you have and make that group as large as you need it to be, but not larger than that. So that's how it goes. These are some of the some of the rules of power. There's much more to that, but I'm just giving a brief, cursory overview. Okay, amazing Indian citizen says, "What are your views on hyperloop transportation? Is it group? Is it good for mass transportation? Should India adopt it on a large scale?" So, what is the hyperloop? Uh, the hyperloop is something that Elon Musk is building, is is a, is working on. He has a company called the Boring Company, I think, which is working on the hyperloop technology. I think Richard Branson's Virgin Group is also working on hyperloop te- technology and so on. So what is hyperloop technology? You have uh, a tube below the surface of the earth in which you have a train that is most likely levitated either magnetically or on a cushion of air. And this tunnel is mostly evacuated, which means that it is mostly devoid of air. And if you evacuate the tunnel, make it more or less like a vacuum, then there is no air resistance, which means that there is no upper limit on the speed at which your train can travel. Right? So that is in brief, in a nutshell, what the hyperloop transportation is. Is it good for mass transportation? Well, it depends. The human, see, human beings have a certain tolerance, a certain limit of their tolerance to to being shaken around. So you may have noticed this. If you're traveling by air on a plane and there is turbulence, we know that uh, that uh, planes travel at 500, 600, 700, 800 kilometers per hour, depending on where you are. At that speed, if there is turbulence, then you are shaken up or down or side by side. And if that continues for too long, you're going to have nausea. You're going to end up vomiting. And the same thing happens when you're traveling by car. If there is too much movement, if the driver is not good, and he or she keeps moving the car around too fast and too rapidly, From side to side, then you're going to develop nausea. That happens in cars, in buses, in planes, in ships. When you go on ships, you get the seasickness because of this constant movement that you're not used to that causes nausea. And I think the limit of the human tolerance to nausea, to this kind of phenomenon, is too, not sure what it is. There is a certain radius of curvature beyond which, if you go, you're going to develop nausea. Now, in the case of, and that that depends on the speed. The higher the speed at which you're traveling, the the greater should be the radius of curvature. Otherwise, you will develop nausea or you will, get, you will get intensely sick. You may even lose consciousness if it goes beyond a point. When it comes to the hyperloop, we're talking about traveling at nearly the speed of an aircraft, maybe 700, 800, 900 kilometers per hour, possibly. Possibly. At such high speeds, if you have any. Uh, curvature of your path, there is a higher chance of the uh, l- breaching the limit of, of the tolerance to nausea. And we know that the Earth is curved. We are on a roughly round planet. And the curvature of the, of the Earth itself could uh, impose a limitation uh, on the speed at which you can travel. Unless you can drill a straight line, extremely straight uh, path below the surface of the earth and, and cut out the curvature of, of the earth as well. So there are all these problems. If I mean, if you look at the uh, high-speed trains that you have anywhere in the world, whether it's in Japan, whether it's the uh, trains in France, the TGV trains, or whether it's in China, there is a limit beyond which, they the speed limit beyond which they don't go, especially when they are going on a curved path, when they're turning. So all that has to be taken into account. And because of that, there may be limits to the speed at which hyperloop can transport human beings. And those limits may be such that it may not be very financially viable to create these hyperloop systems. You could just have above the surface trains. So hyperloop is still something that is being studied, being researched. It may or may not be great for high speed transportation for human beings. It will be certainly great for cargo for transporting cargo so it's something that needs to be validated and and tested further so i believe india should not start investing in the hyperloop technology until it is proven in other countries then we can acquire it okay abhinav says please speak about ancient india which is said to be filled with scientific marvels and mysteries Well, India had this reputation in ancient times of being this scientifically most and technologically most advanced civilization in the world. Everybody knew that about India. I'm talking about the neighbors. China, the Romans, the Greeks, the Arabs, the Persians, and so on and so so forth. India was always the most technologically advanced civilization until the last 1,000 years. Right? Now, let's let's take an example. There is this... uh, collection of stories in Arabic called the Arabian Nights, I believe. The Arabian Nights. It's a collection of stories. Most of these stories are inspired by the Panchatantra and the Jataka tales. Now there is one story, one of these stories is, what is it called? The Ebony Horse or something. In which there is this Indian engineer or Indian guy Who comes to a city in Iran, I think it was Shiraz in Iran, and he comes on a mechanical flying horse. And there's a whole story around that, around this flying horse. So an Indian person, an Indian engineer, had built a horse, a mechanical horse that could actually fly in the air, it could fly to great heights. So that's the kind of reputation India had of having the most advanced technology in the world. So that's just one example. There are lots of other examples. So that's the kind of uh, past that India had. I am not sure if we had flying horses and Vimanas and all that. But at least our neighbors seemed to believe that. Right? Okay, uh, this is a question by Bakanami. bakanani I'm currently reading Mandala 1 of an English translation of the Rig Veda. I have come to know that somras was a juice extracted by stones crushing a plant. It's not mentioned anywhere that it was an alcoholic drink. Can you tell me what was somras? Some say it was wine, but wine is made from grapes, not from a plant. Please answer this question. <clears throat> okay. Listen, if I have the answer, I'll 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 have an answer that nobody else has been able to find in the past several centuries. See, as of today, nobody knows what Somaras actually was. What we know is that there was a plant whose stalks were crushed between stones or through some some press. The juice was extracted and it was the greatest drink of the Vedic age. It was not an intoxicating drink. It was not an alcoholic drink. But it was something that invigorated you and gave you energy, gave you bravery. It is something you drank before you went into battle. So it had certain qualities like that. One could call it reasonably, accurately, to be a performance enhancing drink of some kind. Today you have Red Bull and Monster Energy and, and what not. So apparently, Somaras was the holy, the sacred performance enhancing drink of the Vedic age. So clearly so there have been a uh, a number of theories. One of the theories is that it was a psilocybin mushroom. But the texts don't mention any mushroom. They mention a plant with long stalks. S-T-A-L-K-S. Stalks. So it's a plant whose stalks were crushed to extract the juice which was drunk and it gave you great powers, great energy. So one of the theories, like I I said, was the psilocybin mushroom. That seems to be a theory that should not be taken that seriously. Uh, Another theory says that it is the ephedra plant, which grows in mountainous regions. It grows in the Himalayas, uh, in Kashmir, and in many parts of Central Asia. So that is something that they have used to uh, push the Aryan invasion myth, or the migration myth, that the Aryans, the Vedic Aryans, they lived in Central Asia, where this plant was available, and after they reached India, they lost all. access to this plant and that's why soma has become a big mystery. We don't quite know what it is. The ephedra plant does grow in the Himalayas, in parts of India, in Kashmir and so on and so forth. So it's not something that's beyond India as such. So the, the truth is that we don't quite know yet. We don't quite know. We don't have a conclusive answer as to what the soma plant was. We know it was not alcoholic We know that it was not alcohol, we know that it was not intoxicating, but it was invigorating. So it's something that our great, wonderful historians have not really looked into. European scholars have tried to speculate about this, but there is no clear answer as of today. So unfortunately, I will not be able to answer your question. I can give you the various prevailing hypotheses, but none of these have been proven yet. Shogun Khan says do Mongols use crossbows? I suppose you are trying to ask me whether the Mongols used crossbows in the past. Today no one uses crossbows. Hmm? So uh, historically the Mongols used a composite bow, bow. It was a double curved bow similar to the bow that the Scythians and ancient Indians used. Uh, it was made up of uh, wood and bone and sinew and various other things. It was a very strong bow and typically Mongolian archers would have lopsided shoulders. One shoulder would be overdeveloped because of the amount of energy they needed to put they needed to put in their practice. and their fingers would get really, really hard because those were really hard bows to to uh, you know use. So historically, the traditional Mongolian bow was the double curved composite bow, but during the times of the Great Lord Shri Chinggis Khan, the Mongolians conquered China twice, and the thing about the Mongols was that they were always happy to acquire and uh, absorb new technology, and the Chinese used crossbows uh, from the. Uh, the Chinese have a history in the past two to a half thousand years of using crossbows. So the Mongols came across crossbows when they invaded China. They came across the uh, armored clothing as well. So these are things they borrowed from the Chinese and from that point forwards, uh, Mongolian soldiers would use the composite bow as well as the crossbow. So, to make a long answer short, yes, the Mongols did eventually end up using crossbows during their conquests. Abhishek says, can you please explain the power trumps wealth thing with an example other than that of Sri Chinggis Khan? There are hundreds of examples you can think of. Let's think of something more recent. In 2016, Donald J. Trump became the president of the U.S. He was very clear about the things that he wanted to achieve. He wanted to build a big wall between the U.S. and Mexico. He wanted a certain kind of foreign policy. What was he able to achieve? He was the president of the U.S. for four years. Was he able to build the wall? No. Was he able to uh, have the kind of foreign policy that we wanted no. He was a, he is a very wealthy man. But as the President of the US, he was in office, but not really in power. If he was truly in power, he would have built that wall, he would have implemented various uh, aspects of his foreign policy, and so on. When he went to Europe to meet with various uh, world leaders from NATO, from the EU, He found that he was not even treated treated with appropriate respect because he was never really in power. He was only in office. He he was not a part of the US political establishment. He was an outsider. He managed to win the election, but he was stymied at every step of the way. His own party voted against him during the impeachment proceedings. That's why they they, they, they were able to impeach him. That is an excellent example of power Trump's wealth. This man was one of the wealthiest people in the US and yet, even as the President of the US, he he was powerless. He could achieve nothing. Power always Trump's wealth. He was never in power. They always saw him as an outsider and they did not allow him to do anything that he wanted to do as the President of the US. Let's take another example closer to home. One of the richest persons in China is Jack Ma. He is one of the richest persons in the world. Should that not mean that he should be more powerful than most members of the Chinese Communist Party? Should that not mean that he should be more powerful than Xi Jinping? And yet he is not. Yet he is not. He disappeared for a few months after he fell foul of the Chinese Communist Party. He disappeared for a few months. He eventually reappeared with a long profusely apologetic video of apologizing for all the various financial and other misdeeds he had done. Essentially, a person as wealthy as Jack Ma has less power than a random Chinese Communist Party district official. You understand that? So wealth is nothing unless you have real power. Wealth is meaningless without power. Yeah, sure, you will live a reasonably comfortable life, but you will never be able to achieve the things that a politician can achieve, even a low-level politician can achieve. So that's how it is. You may be one of the richest people in whatever country you're living in, but a local district official can be more powerful than you are and can get more things done than what, what you can done. So power always trumps wealth. I've given two examples. There are lots more that you can think of if you can see it. Okay, let's take a couple more questions then we will go somewhere else. Um, Aman says, we know that longitudes on the Earth demark time and all the longitudinal lines meet at the poles. So what is the time at the poles? Time is meaningless at the poles. Typically what you do when you are at the near the North Pole or in Antarctica, what you do is you use the time of your country. So if you're an Indian scientist in Antarctica near the South Pole, then you will use IST, Indian Standard Time. If you are an Argentinian scientist or, or whatever near Ant, in, Ant, in Ant, Antarctica, you will use the Argentinian time and so on and so forth. So time has no real meaning at the poles, but you can use whatever time you choose over there. Typically, you will choose the local time of your own country. That's how it is. All right. Next question is by Dhruvit Joshi. I was never never able to understand the concept of heat. What is heat fundamentally? Is it a form of energy? Is it just the vibration of molecules? Or does it cause the vibration of molecules? Please help us understand. See, it's very simple. Heat is a form of energy. Every, um, see, all quantities in physics have a certain unit. Time, has the unit of second, length is the unit of meter, mass, kilograms, electric current, amperes, temperature, Kelvin, and so on and so forth. These are the units. So what is the unit of heat? The unit of heat is very simple. It is the joule. The joule is a derived unit, kilogram meter squared per second squared. That is the unit of energy. So it's very simple. The unit of uh, heat is the joule and therefore heat is nothing but a form of energy. You take a rod of metal, iron rod, and you heat it up, it means it has more energy now. That heat, that energy came from somewhere else. You had to impart that energy into that iron rod to make it glow. So, to to keep it very simple, heat is nothing but a form of energy. That's all it is. It does not, it, it is not the vibration of molecules, it is what causes the vibration of molecules. All right. Sarathoyibi says, "Why does society favor extroverts?" Well, see, society is the the interaction of human beings. The cliche says says that man is a social animal. Humans are social animals, and society is made of the is built out of the interaction and cooperation and coordination of various human beings. So the more amenable you are to interacting with the other human beings, the more an integral part of society you can be. So those who are extroverts are naturally more inclined to interacting more frequently and more strongly with the other people. And that's why they, society naturally gives them a more uh, favorable role in society. Introverts are people who kind of keep to themselves, don't talk a lot and so on. So that's why um, typically they would have a lesser role to play in society, which is not always the case. Historically, most great scientists and most great uh, entrepreneurs, industrialists, etc. Not most, but a significant proportion of these have been introverts. I would say in the case of scientists, most great scientists must have been introverts. Even when it comes to uh, billionaires, etc. Think about somebody like Elon Musk. He is not quite an extrovert, right? And and there must be lots of other other examples. So um, it's not always the case, especially when you reach the higher levels of society with the top 1% or the top 1% of the 1%. Over there, it's actually, it may be the case that introverts are more represented than extroverts. But overall, when it comes to the average human being, I think extroverts stand a higher, have typically a higher position or role in society just because of the way they are built. They are better at small talk. Introverts don't know what small talk is. Extroverts can just go and talk to just anybody and talk about any topic, small talk, how's the weather, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah which introverts don't quite understand. So that's the advantage that extroverts have. But in the long run, maybe not quite the case. So that's where that's how it is. Uh, let's take a couple of questions more. Shweta says, Is it really sensible for a 40-year-old, someone to be running behind career, ignoring their own health, not sleeping well, tight diet, not giving the mind a rest? What do you think will be the repercussions? Is the body a machine? The body is not a machine. Uh, In modern medicine, the body is considered to be a system with different organs, a collection of organs, like India is supposedly a collection of states. Somebody said recently, look, it's more than that. The body affects the mind, the mind affects the body. If you are unhappy, the body becomes ill, or if you are ill, the body, the mind becomes unhappy and so on and so forth. It's not quite a machine, it's something beyond that. And this is this is something that applies to everybody, not only somebody in their 40s, even somebody in their teens, if they don't take care of the health, it's gonna affect everything. So it is good to be ambitious. You have to be ambitious if you want to get ahead in life. But one does need to take care of these things, especially sleep. Sleep is a superpower. You sleep, the average human being needs eight hours of sleep. You sleep eight hours properly in a dark room an uninterrupted sleep, it's going to give you so much energy and power that other people won't get. So one needs to take care of sleeping properly, eating the right kind of food, not eating garbage and exercising regularly. If you do that, you're going to do well in life in the long term. That applies to people in any stage of life. Teenagers, 20-year-old people and even people in their 40s and beyond. All right, one more question. Suraj says, Amber Heard of Johnny Depp or Johnny Depp Obviously, Johnny Depp. Obviously. Okay, let me take a few questions from the live chat. From the live chat. What do we have? Mm, You have any questions for me? Ask them now and I will take a few more. Someone says, sleep is more important than food. Well, if you don't eat food, (laughs) uh, well, sleep won't matter a lot. It's all important. All of these things are important. You just need to have a a certain kind of balance, the right kind of balance. It depends from person to person. Everybody is built differently. Everybody has a different kind of genetics, different metabolism, different amount of sleep you need, and so on and so forth. You have to understand who you are, what your body is like, what your mind is like, and do what is best for you. So you have to first learn to listen to your body in your mind. That takes time. Okay. What else do we have? Uh, Some questions. Abhishek says, what do you think of India as a future superpower? Yes, I think India is a future superpower. If, you, if we get things right, it will be a superpower. By 2050 for sure. If we get things right, if with the right leadership, we will do it. Okay. Mm. Saurabh says, why is Russia unable to defeat Ukraine completely when they have more and more arms and ammunition? To answer this question, we have to understand what Russia's true motives are or were. Do we know what was the objective of the invasion? Did Mr. Putin put out a a tweet saying that, okay, this is my objective. Within the next these many days, I want to conquer the whole of Ukraine. Did he say that? Did he make an announcement like that? So why are we assuming that the objective of this military operation was to take over the whole of Ukraine? Why are we assuming this? Did, it, did Mr. Putin say that that was his objective? We don't know what the true objectives were. Perhaps the objective was to only take over Eastern Ukraine and the Black Sea coast. Maybe that was the objective. Maybe they don't, don't want to take over the whole of Ukraine. Maybe they want to take over only the Russian-speaking portions of Ukraine, which they more or less have taken. They have already taken, the Russians have already conquered one-fourth of Ukraine, they have conquered a territory that is larger than the area of Bangladesh or Nepal. Right? And they have done that without using much of the air force and much of the army. They have this enormous aerial firepower. They have a huge air force that they have not used. They have arms, ammunition, missiles, they have everything. They chose not to use that Maybe they only wanted to capture what they have captured, and maybe a little bit more. And I believe that whenever Mr. Putin decides that he has achieved his objectives, he will declare a ceasefire, unilaterally. And then we are done. So, a country has captured a territory that is greater, larger than the territory of Nepal or Bangladesh. I, don't, I think that's a huge achievement. Maybe that is what they were after. We don't know what they were after. So that is where we are. Let's not assume things. That the objective was to capture the entire area that we see on the map. Maybe not. Maybe not. Only time will tell us what the real objectives were. Okay, what else do we have? Have you read Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World? What's your perspective? Um, I haven't read it. I've heard about it. The Demon Haunted World. Not sure what it's about. Maybe I will read it in the future if I do ever get the time. Is a global a NATO possible? Will India become a member of this group? If you have a global NATO, it means that every country is a part of that. right? A global NATO means a NATO that incorporates the whole globe which means that every country is part of it if it is a global group then india will obviously be a part of this group but why would somebody create a global nato i don't see such a thing ever happening personally all right rishi says in is geopolitics raj dharma creating instability in other nations for oil in your country your people what us did Geopolitics is about serving your nation. It's about furthering your national interest. That is what Rajdharma is. Your duty is to your nation, your kingdom, your empire, and your people. That is the only duty that you have. Their long-term national interest and their long-term prosperity. That's all your duty is. You don't have a duty to the citizens of other countries and to other nations. And other nations are going to try and exploit your nation. So it is your duty to go ahead and exploit their nations. That's how it works in geopolitics. These are the lessons that our great lord Vishnu Gupta Chanakya gave to us. And that's the rules that we have to play by. That's how it goes. Right. What else do we have? Mm Hmm... Was the American War of Independence actually Britishers versus Britishers? British versus British. Yes, it was. That's what it was. See, it's like this. The British, a bunch of European nations colonized the Americas. The Spaniards colonized South America, to some extent the Portuguese as well. And it was the British and the French mostly who colonized North America, the entire continent. Now, after some time, the British who were in North America were able to secure their own territory, defeat the French, push the French up north. It eventually became Canada. Then they they asked themselves, why should we continue paying taxes to the British Empire, to to the British crown? Why can't we just take this land over for ourselves and keep all the money? So essentially, the war was the objective of the war was to ensure that they don't have to pay taxes anymore to the British king, to the king of England. So that is what it was. It was a separatist war. It was the British settlers in North America who wanted to break their ties with the British crown so that they don't have to pay any more taxes so that they can get more money for for themselves. So it was British against British and that's what it was. Right. Let's take a couple more questions. Um, what do we have? Something that I've not answered before. How long does one session last? Well, let's find out. Genie, what is the difference of what is the history of Afghans and the difference between Patans and Afghans? The Pathans are the Pashtuns. The majority population of Afghanistan is the Pashtuns. They are the true inhabitants of Afghanistan. They are genetically an extension of the northern Indian population. Genetically, culturally, they were Indians a thousand years ago. They are still genetically more or less the same as the northern Indian population. But culturally, they are very different now. So the history of Afghanistan is a very long history. I can't tell you in two minutes. Afghanistan was essentially Gandhar, a part of India, Indian territory. And then things happened in the past thousand years and it became a separate country eventually. So the difference between Pashtuns, Pathans and Afghans is that there is no difference. The majority ethnic group in Afghanistan is the Pashtuns. And I have other videos about this. I would recommend that you watch that if you want to know more. Who are the Kalash people of Pakistan? They are an ancient uh, ethnic group. They look very European, but genetically they are Indians. Um, they practice a very ancient form of Hinduism, which seems to be almost Rigvedic Vedic in nature. They are extremely oppressed and persecuted and they may not last very long in Pakistan. Unfortunately. Right. Um, uh, Any other questions that I have that are interesting? What books do you suggest for geopolitics lessons? You know, there are no books for geopolitics. There are lots of books about various uh, kinds of history. Indian history, Western history, Greek history, Roman history, African history, American history, blah, blah, blah. Geopolitics is something that transcends all of these things. There is no textbook of geopolitics. You can't learn geopolitics from textbooks. That's how it is. I cannot suggest, I don't have a single book that I can recommend or suggest for learning geopolitics. I have not learned geopolitics from any textbook of geopolitics. That's not how it works. To understand geopolitics, you have to first understand causality, the cause and effect chain that underlies the patterns of history which means that you have to study a lot of history you have to read a lot of world history local history then you have to understand the global system the financial system the supply chains so many more things all of that if you understand then you may start understanding geopolitics it's something that takes a lot of time there is no course in any university on geopolitics or any, any college there are no textbooks so Unfortunately, I am unable to recommend books about geopolitics because no such book exists. And I'm sure somebody, some smart person will now find some book. that yeah, there is this textbook on geopolitics. Well, go ahead and read it and see how much you learn. Okay, let me take one or two more questions. Okay, Ramit says, China claims Vladivostok of Japan, when will they open that issue if something happens? Is a nuclear war possible? Okay, that's a good question. Let's go to the map. Where is Vladivostok? So, this huge nation in Eurasia, from Europe all the way to Asia, is Russia. In the west, the capital is the capital, Moscow. And this extends all the way to the Pacific Ocean, in the east. And over here, where is the city Vladivostok? Here it is. So the city of Vladivostok is a is a port city. It's a it's a coastal city in the far east of Russia. It's right north of North Korea, and the Chinese have a claim. They have always had claims to Russian parts of Russian territory, especially. Uh, the far east of Russia right now the claims are dormant uh, the Chinese and the Russians almost went to war in the 1960s along the Usuri river and that almost led to a nuclear war it was averted because of various reasons which I have gone into in the past so right now the territorial dispute is more or less settled because they had this agreement, they signed the agreement in the about 20 or so years ago roughly which closed the border issue. But the Russians also understand that any border dispute that they have with the Chinese, even if it may be officially settled, it's simply dormant. The Chinese will bring it out when the time is right. So the Chinese do claim Vladivostok, and it is something that they will reopen in the future when they deem the time to be right. And that could lead to a war or maybe not. Depending on the Relative strengths of the two nations at that point in time. So that's about the Russia-China border dispute vis-à-vis Vladivostok. Okay. Shall we take... Okay, well let's take one final question. Teja says, can AI help in archaeology and deciphering unknown scripts? AI can certainly help in deciphering unknown scripts, especially machine learning. You can feed a whole bunch of symbols into the machine learning program and see what it spits out. As long as you have trained it properly, it may be actually able to decipher unknown scripts like like the Indus Valley or the Harappan or the Saraswati Sindhu script. It is certainly something that can help. And there is a program in which, I mean, um, there is this uh, research program that I heard of a couple of years ago In which there is this AI that has been trained to read Egyptian hieroglyphics and it's able to do expedite the process of of, uh, translating previously untranslated hieroglyphic inscriptions into English. So, certainly, it can be done. It's already being used for that kind of purpose. So, maybe it is something we can use to decipher the Saraswati Sindhu script. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the questions. I'm going to stop it here, I'm going to end it here. great doing this live again and we're going to do it again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you again to all of all of you who have subscribed. Thank you to my 300,000 fam- strong family and I'll see you next week. Until then, take care and bye.